Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. Continuing with Fire on the Horizon, we're going over the next chapter, which is The Mirror of Judgment. So, last time we talked about the idea of sin, an original sin, and some ways in which there is kind of a, a way that we still suffer in a bit from the acts of Adam and Eve, though it's not the idea of original sin that came in from, like, say, Augustine or later thinkers, but we still had some, you know, just effects that were born into a world in a certain environment with, you know, a certain upbringing that's going to just bring up some issues. And we talked about hiding ourselves and then having a circumcised heart so that we could not have a hard heart and such. And today we're talking about the next step of that, which is, like I said, called the mirror of judgment. So you start out by saying, the human response to sin after judging ourselves as worthless objects and hiding from God is to blame and flee accountability. For example, the first thing that God asks Adam and Eve when he comes to the garden after they've taken of the fruit is why they hid themselves. So let me read this other paragraph, and then you can go into it a little bit. You say, the Lord God wants to know where they are, not in the sense of, of him not knowing where they are located in the garden, but of asking them, why do you hide? Where are you in your way of being in the world? And Adam's answer makes it immediately clear where they are, He's basically saying, not like out loud, but you know, he's communicating, I'm in the it world, which is the I-thou world we talked about, you know. But he's saying, I'm in the it world, the world of separation. I am an effect of a chain of causes. I am an effect of Eve's temptation. After all, you, God, gave her to me and told me to stay with her, and thus it is your fault. And Eve is also a mere effect. She says she was beguiled by the serpent, and it's the serpent's fault. In other words, she says, yes, we all say, yes, I did it, but I was caused to do it by someone else. And so we've talked about how that is a way that people tend to deal with things a little bit. So we've talked about self-deception and hiding ourselves and hardening our hearts, but now you're talking about blaming other people, not taking accountability. Well, it's an insightful story to observe what is really happening in this story in Eden. And... First of all, they hide themselves from God. And the reason they're hiding themselves from God has nothing to do with reality. I mean, let's put this into perspective. They've been running around this story the entire time naked, and not a stitch on. And it's never mattered before. They've met with God, they've spoken with God, and they have had the opportunity to observe what's going on. But not once has it bothered them that they're naked. But now, for some reason... It bothers them that they're naked. It bothers them so much they don't dare to be in God's presence. Now, the nakedness obviously symbolizes standing before God just as we are without any facade, at any pretense, and without anything to hide behind. And it's significant that in this story, they're not taking them clues from themselves about who and how they are. They're listening to somebody else who is telling them that they're not good enough to be in God's presence, and so they have to hide. And what happens immediately, once they've judged themselves to not be good enough for God's presence just the way they are, they immediately begin to shirk accountability for their decisions. 
what they're refusing to recognize, and, and look at your own life and see how this shows up over and over again, they're refusing to take accountability for the choice that they make. They have chosen to hide. They made the decision. God's never told them to hide. Now, this is the most significant thing in the whole story, in my view. Not once has God commanded them to not be naked. They're hiding for something that they make up on their own. It has nothing to do with anything that God cares about. They feel unworthy to be in God's presence for something that doesn't even matter. That God's never judged and doesn't care to judge. In fact, if, you know, we've been through this before, if God had asked them, well, why did you hide yourself? Well, <laughs> I hid because I was naked. The next obvious question is, well, why are you naked? And the answer has to be, well, that's just how you made me. And so what they're doing is telling God, you know, the way you made me is not good enough. I'm not good enough to be in your presence just as you made me. And so I've got to hide. But now that I've got to hide and I'm not good enough, I now have to begin to make excuses. And I've got to explain why I'm feeling so rotten about myself. And the answer is somebody else is making me do it. You remember the old Flip Wilson line? You, you probably don't remember Flip Wilson. He, he had the line, the devil made me do it. <laughs> and, you know, every time I heard that, I remember thinking, I don't think I need the devil to make me do anything. I think I'm quite capable of doing it all on my own. But we, we get in the Edenic story here. The first person who's called to account is Adam. And it's like, well, Adam, you partook of the fruit, and now you're hiding yourself. That You know the difference between good and evil. And so now they have the capacity to feel guilt because they know the difference between good and evil. And so he's feeling all guilty about what's happened. And so he blames Eve, but the primary person that he's blaming isn't Eve. You know, that woman that you gave me and you told me to stay with her? Well, she gave me that fruit, and I had to eat. And so he's blaming both both Eve, but primarily God, because God made such a defective creature to place in his way and told him to stick with her. Now, I don't know how often this shows up in marriages, but I used to do a few divorces as an attorney, and I have to tell you, the notion that somebody is married to a, a totally defective creature that is really causing all of, all of that person's problems is so prominent in every divorce I did is just amazing. And yet, there was always a refusal to take accountability in the relationship. Now, we get to Eve. Okay, well, Eve gave you the fruit. Well, Eve, what are you doing? It's, well, you know, that serpent, he, he, he beguiled me. He fooled me. And so it's not really my fault. You let the serpent into the garden. What did you think was going to happen? He's wise and, and, and wily. I mean, he's just, he's a snake after all. And so Eve is very good at blaming the serpent for what she did. So how many times do we blame things that are just so naturally that way? We know how they've got to be, but we blame the situation or we blame the way people are. We blame their, their environment. We blame their parents. And the biggest cop-out of all, I think we've discussed this a little bit before, is Satan's cop-out. When Satan is called to account, what does he say? And essentially, he says, look, this is just what I always do. You've just got to expect, I'm going to do it this way, because after all, I'm a snake, and I just do what snakes do. I do this on every. Well, what Satan is doing is the ultimate denial of the atonement. What he's saying is, I can't change. It's always going to be this way, because it's just the way I am. This is the ultimate cop-out. I can't overcome this. I don't have the willpower. I'm addicted. I can't do this. I'm stuck being what I am, and if you expect me to change, it just can't be, because I can't change. That's the denial of the atonement, is the denial of everything that Christ stands for, because he came to save us from our past, to make it so our past is not the predictor and determinant of our future. 
And so Satan is being very subtle here in simply denying the atonement and passing on the notion that, well, you know, people really can't change. It's just the way things are, and, you know, we can't really do anything about it. The whole point of the atonement is that we become new persons. We become born again into a new world, not stuck with the causes that went before. So I think that this identic story, especially this interchange, I think it's, it was intended to be done as a drama. And when it's done as a drama, I think we often miss, maybe because of the setting and the way it's presented, but we miss the humor that's inherent in this kind of exchange. Because it really is humorous. They're all there refusing accountability, blaming everybody for things that don't even matter. And God is just probably sitting there shaking his head and saying, you know, you're taking on guilt for things that aren't really even contrary to what I've told you to do and not to do. You're making things up. How often do we do that in our lives? How often do we just make things up to feel guilty over? And at the end of the day, they just really don't matter. So I think that this story is incredibly insightful about our human condition, especially about the way we are in relationships and the way we hold ourselves before God. And the ultimate cop-out, you know, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm too far gone, I'm a lost cause, I can't change, and that's the ultimate denial. That's joining Satan in the way he sees the world. All right, yeah, and then you mentioned in the chapter that that's, that is kind of buying into, you know, this, what the serpent suggested. He's the one that put forth the reason of, you are naked, you know, go and hide. He's the one that was telling us, so you can say that's, you know, either like a literal Satan or just the little Satan inside each of us, our, of our own mind, that tells us that we're not good enough somehow. But once they judge themselves that way, then they try to hide who they really are. They hide, or they at least try to hide before God, even though obviously you can't. But they try to hide from other people, which is, I guess it's only the two of them, but as a metaphor, you know, we all tried to hide. And the effect of hiding your true self is what we talked about last time of trying to avoid, is a hard heart, where you create walls and you try to protect your vulnerable self because you, you know, have some issues that you think that you need to just not show anybody but the problem is that you get stuck within your own hard heart and your own little world and then another problem is we at least the way you put it is that we become captive to our own minds and we can't really be authentic if we're just within our own self and you kind of then go into a little bit of philosophy of mind about the way that Descartes and Kant talked about it so kind of tell us a little bit about what you mean about that and then like can we be authentic if all we have is our own mind and such yeah i mean this is an interesting episode in western philosophy you get descartes starting out recognizing that we are the creators of our own ideas and every idea we have we've created which is an interesting thing because let's say i meet you all i really know of you according to descartes and this is really descartes as interpreted by edmund Husserl. he's a continental philosopher and what he's saying is if all I really know of you are my ideas, then I can't meet you. I can't really know anything about you. I, all I really know about you is my idea of you. And so there really is no other involved. The only thing involved is the same as me, my ideas that I've created about you. And I can't get out of this way of being in the world if I just get stay stuck in my head, okay? And then we get Kant, and I think Kant is a major move forward in Western philosophy. But he really doesn't solve this particular problem. We have this amazing apparatus. We have a filter through which we pass all of our experience. So when I meet a person, we've talked about how we do this before, and I think we all do it almost unthinkingly. Oh, you remind me of this person, or I'm going to judge you this way because you seem to be like this person that I knew before. 
And so what we have is this sense that we're filtering everything through what we are. And so the world ends up being merely a reflection of what we impose upon the world ourselves. That is our ideas of the world that we create. And so that's basically how it gets set up. Now, this has huge consequences for the way that we view the world. I call this the mirror principle, hence the title of this particular section, the mirror of judgment. What it means is that when I look at another person and I judge that person, all I'm really doing is judging based upon my idea of that person. And that idea of the person is something that I created myself. And so all I'm really doing is judging myself because I've created a mirror in which I look when I judge others. And so it's literally true that by every judgment I judge another person, I literally judge myself. And so there's no way to get outside of this. I can't reach the other person in this way. I'm stuck in this notion that there is no other. The only thing that I have is the way that this is for me as I create it to be for me. Now, there are a lot of people who believe that our knowledge of the world is simply a simulation, our brains. Now, And in some sense, the world is merely a simulation. Our sense experience is created by our senses and interpreted in our brains. And our experience of the world is not the world itself. It's the sense that if I touch, it's the experience of my cells being relayed through electrochemical means to be interpreted in the motor cortex, or if I'm seeing something, the, the photons are reaching my eyes, and my eyes are taking and you know converting that to electrical chemical energy, and it goes to my visual cortex at the back of my head, and I interpret it there. But what I'm experiencing is not the world, but this simulation that's created by the senses in my brain of what I can grasp of the world. However... I would urge that we not get too caught up in this solipsistic worldview, and that is because the fact is that human beings survived interacting with the world, and the best clue that we're onto something about the way the world actually is is that we have survived, and we're not wiped out by a world, and we wouldn't survive very long at all in this world if we weren't onto at least something about the way the world actually is and the way we interact with it. And so what I'm asserting here is the very basic assertion that in this world of sensibility, in this world of things that we create, and these are things, remember, you're not revealing yourself to me in the way that it would be if I encountered you in an eye-thou relationship. Rather, what I'm doing is imposing on you the way that I see the world, and you are a mere thing because I've created you as a thing. And in creating you as a thing, I've made of myself a thing also, and here's how that works. All I really have are the incoming stimuli. This is the way that the scientific worldview works, by the way. It's the way that the profane world works. Everything I experience is experienced as a causal effect of things that went long before I could ever get to them. And the world is already set to be what it is by the time I experience it. And my experience of it is what I've created of it. And so I've created a mere thing of me because I'm now the causal effect of things that are acting upon me. The causation goes both ways. I cause you to be in my scheme of things where I want you to be and how I create you to be. But you also create my sense experience to be what it is. And I'm at the mercy of my senses because I can't change what they are. By the time I have sense experience, it's already in the past and can't be changed. And so I'm in this desperate situation in a world that I can't really reach. I can't really assess. And all it is is the world as I've created it to be in the way that I have taken and ordered it and fashioned it for myself, and that's all that there is of the world, and there's nothing outside of that. So what happens now when we can get to this is, in essence, this is the creation of an ego. And the ego is the idea that we have of how others see us. And this is the most strange notion in the entire world. So it's how I think others see me. But if there were ever a logically impossible notion, it would be 
knowing how others see me. It's literally logically impossible for me to know how others see me. So it's actually how I see myself and how I think others see me and how I would like to appear to others. And so the ego becomes this kind of an appearance where I'm putting on a facade to try to create the world the way I want it to be. And so this is the mirror of judgment. All I'm really doing is is imposing myself on the world. And in so doing, I'm creating this ego to appear to be something that I'm not. Yeah, the quote from the book is, you say that the ego is the source of scarcity and consumption. And you have a quote that says, the ego occupies himself with his own my. And it says, my manner, my race, my works, my genius. So a person that thinks this way sets themselves up, up, or sets themselves apart from everything else and tries to possess as much as possible by means of experience and use. Yeah, and so the ego is the user. It uses others to satisfy itself, but it also uses others as a means of impressing them. And so what I really do is spend my time creating this facade. And the worst part of the ego is that it's essentially a self-deception. We have to recognize that the ego is this logically impossible construct that we have of how others see us. But here's the really interesting thing, and you know, we can get into self-deception theory, and we will a little bit more. The problem is that we actually buy into this creation, (laughs) this facade, as who we actually are. And so we come to see ourselves, we invest into this notion of ourselves as we present ourselves to others. Now let me put it this way, this is the way to talk to millennials. What the ego is, it is the Facebook creation of how we want others to believe our lives actually are. It's a facade, a fraud, a mirage. It's this kind of thing where we're creating an impression of ourselves that just isn't true. And at some level, we know it's not true, but we have to protect it from being exposed. And so we will very often control others so that our ego concept isn't exposed for what it really is. And that's just nonsense and and a fraud that isn't true. But if we believe that we're good and competent and we get evidence that we're not good and competent, and we all believe that we're good and competent. We want to all be good, wonderful, and, and, and you know handsome and pretty and all of these things. And we want to see ourselves in these ways. And so we buy into these kind of things. And then when we get exposed for who we really are, and if you want to know, I mean, just ask all the women to take their makeup off and ask all of the men to, to stop pretending. And we'll see who we really are. And it won't be like we appear on Facebook. Yeah, true. I mean, that is something that, we're dealing with it's like the ego only like made material if you will you know like somewhere to go yeah the the facebook is really ego on steroids <laughs> okay i mean inevitably and so that's why we get this this absolute nonsense and why it is such you know buying into the worst of a culture and actually creating a culture that is a fraud and a mirage and if we think that this is real when it gets shattered you know people get shattered but frankly, they, they ought to be shattered. All right. So, I mean, this chapter is kind of an introductory chapter to the next one where we talk about a little bit more about the atonement and, and such. But as a summation of all these chapters, before we get into that, is there anything else that you want to say is in regards to what it is that leads us down this path? Just to sum up, you call it the mirror of judgment, and in the book, I guess we didn't talk about this, but it's, or we did a little bit, but it's like, there's kind of a saying or an understanding, like, when you look at others and you judge them, especially those that are close to you, sometimes the thing that bother you the most about people are the things that you hate about yourself, and you just see it in them, and you're like, oh, I can't believe they do this or this, and at least for me, I've found that sometimes it's qualities of myself 
that I am ashamed of or I'm, you know, not too proud of or I secretly might have, but I may not even acknowledge them, but th- that tends to happen a lot. I have some co-workers and sometimes they don't get along so much, but we all joke because it's so funny because they actually are, they literally have the exact same personality and that's why they clash just because they're actually so close to one another. You know, what you said, and I've you know observed this in the book, but I think it's an incredibly important realization about psychological health and personal well-being, and that is when others are bugging us and what they're doing just gets at us and we can't stand it, what we're really doing is looking in a mirror and the problems that bother us most are our own problems. And so when we do anything to give less than love to another person, when we're unwilling to be kind and unwilling to be charitable in our interactions with them, then it's a time to take a look at ourselves and realize that all we're really doing is looking in a mirror. We're not judging them at all. We don't know them well enough. We know nothing about them that would allow us to have the high status of superior standing to be able to judge them. And instead, what's really happening is we're simply judging ourselves and we're looking in a mirror. And so this is a very important reality. And this is the ultimate realization to take accountability as well. If something's bothering me, it's because I chose to be bothered. And I think this is one of the most profound principles that a human being can learn, and that is nobody in heaven or hell has the power to offend me if I choose not to be offended. Nobody in heaven or hell has the power to make me angry if I choose not to be angry. And nobody in heaven or hell has the power to make me so that I dislike a person if I choose to love them. But it's a choice. And the fact that it's a choice means that I'm accountable for it. And the fact that I'm accountable for it means that I can change it. I can do something about it. That's the good news. The bad news is my past is what it is, and the past ain't changing. (laughs) So my default position is going to be to fall back to the past and just become the inevitable effect of all the causes that went before me. It takes a really conscious individual, a person who affirmatively chooses, who affirmatively creates the world in a way that they are not stuck in the past. And that's part of what we'll be talking about, but that's the real key to Christianity. We are able to create of ourselves people that we choose to be. We're free to choose and we're morally accountable for what we do. And so, you know, we'll be talking, we've talked a lot about this. We're accountable for healing the damage that we've done. We're accountable for healing the relationships that we've damaged and the people that we've hurt. We're accountable for these things. What we're not accountable for is causing somebody else to get mad or causing them to take offense because we don't have that power. They have that power, and we don't even have that power. So I'm, I'm accountable for presenting love to others. I'm not accountable for how they choose to respond. That's their choice. And all the time, one of the biggest problems we have is taking accountability for things that we really have no power over. And so I think it's very healthy in relationships to take accountability, realize that when we're giving anything less than love, we're looking in a mirror, and realizing that if we don't like the results we're getting, we would be stupid not to change. Because if we keep doing what we've been doing all along, we're going to keep getting what we've gotten all along. It takes an affirmative choice to do something different. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.